The Saskatchewan Healthcare Coalition is hosting the All for Public Healthcare Rally in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, May 4th. It's free and you're invited. This rally is happening because our public healthcare system does not have the support it needs to meet the diverse needs of all Saskatchewan residents. For years, it has been underfunded, ignored, and hindered. So join Donna and I in person on May 4th in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan for a walk, speeches, networking, and community building. Link for more information is in the show notes. Hope to see you there. All right, I started seeing Matt Keegan's reels on Facebook a year ago, and when I dug into his content, his music blew my mind. Turns out he's a guy in recovery and is gifted musically and is here with us tonight. But before we bring him in, what's up, everybody? My name's Dan. This is Hard Knocks Talks. Joining me in the studio, we have Donna co-hosting. What's up, Donna? Hello, hello. Just trying to keep up on comments on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get Matt in here. (laughs) <laughs> what's going on hey what's up how we doing doing well man how are you feeling tonight i am feeling fantastic all things considered awesome yes i know you are fighting off a sickness right now but you are powering through tonight to carry can't the message sick. can't be sick for recovery can't be sick for recovery buddy we're ready to carry the message that's right yes sir is there anything you'd like to say before we jump in tonight now just grateful you guys had me on here tonight man i'm i'm, I'm hoping to Hit a message that inspires somebody this evening. Thank you. All right, let's hit it. This is Hard Knocks Talks. If you are struggling with the substance use of a loved one or have tragically lost a loved one to drug-related harms, reach out to Stronger Together Canada, peer-led support groups by Mom Stop the Harm, and or Naranon Groups of Saskatchewan. If you are in search of private inpatient addictions treatment, check out Prairie Sky Recovery Centre located in Libsig, Saskatchewan. To learn more, about today's sponsors check out our new merch or if you want to show us some love and buy us a coffee all those links are in the show notes below on youtube matt your music is ripe with with experience the things that you talk about for from a perspective of lived experience it is very easy to see that you did not just make this shit up like you you've been through it immediately when i first reached out to you that must have been over a year ago now I was interested to know, like, how did this get started? Was this something that you grew up around or did you stumble into it or how did it happen? It's the experience. I lived through it, man, coming up in active addiction. As far as music goes, you know, and incorporating the music thing into it, I've always had a story to tell. I'm the only musician in my family. There's, it doesn't run in my family at all. And how hip hop and rap came into the, the, the picture, I have no idea, man. I'm a death metal drummer. I'm a death metal guitarist. I am. I don't listen to rap really. You know, I grew up listening to Eminem and NF and stuff like that. I have mm-hmm. a okay appreciation for it, but in no way am I in the culture of hip hop or do I have a love for hip hop or anything like that. I was really that guy. So if you could take to go back into your active addiction, I was that guy who would get high off Adderall or get high off some blow and I would start freestyling and I wouldn't shut up. For two hours i would just freestyle and just go and go and uh, it didn't really go anywhere i didn't really put any music out like i said i didn't have any aspirations of being any anything in hip-hop whatsoever hmm. and then uh, i got sober for the first time and uh, my fiance at the time who were together now she told me she listened to this nf song and this kalichi song so i don't know if you know who kalichi is He's mm-hmm. this huge recovery artist here that pretty much set the precedent for this whole thing that i do what i do today he had the mm-hmm. song called Drug Addiction that he wrote, and she had heard it, and she said to me, she, I think you could do something like that. You should try and do something like that one day. 
and I was, I remember hearing that drug addiction song, man, and it just inspired me. You know what I mean? You ever hear something and it just lights a fire in you, man. It just makes you want to create. I would get Absolutely. that feeling and I never knew what to do with it. I'd never sat down and created before. I sat down and I wrote this song and it was called Comfortable in Chaos. And it was about my life. And I was in a halfway house in Florida and I was your typical halfway house kid 30 year old man trying to be a rapper did you have the did you have the white framed sunglasses and the crooks and castle hoodie (laughs) no sir nope none of that hand me hand me down clothes all the way yeah the craziest part about like my story is i just i was like the least person to ever make it to do anything you know what i mean and by no means do i think that i've made it by now but i'm certainly doing stuff that i only ever dreamed of and it's like my music's like all around the world at this point which is absolutely insane to me so i'm gonna jump in real quick here because on that point we have somebody in the comments on facebook wanting to know when are you announcing a tour oh my goodness (laughs) <laughs> I think Actually, I'm super he just, far away from that. He just he just uh, notified everyone that he wouldn't be doing any t- tours for a little while. <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah, you yeah. you remember that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm everything's happening fast. I got eight yeah. months sober. When I made that announcement, I had six months. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was just like when I was going around doing all these events. When my Facebook went viral this year, because when I first started talking to you, Daniel, like last year, I didn't have a Facebook. I had no followers on Facebook at all. I just had. Mm-hmm. 120,000 followers on TikTok. And that was like my main account. And then I started posting to Facebook and the Facebook essentially blew up overnight. And that's how I got to go do the gig in Washington, the one in Indiana, the one in Florida. So all these places are having me come and putting me up in hotels for the weekend and having me speak there. But it just got to be a little too much too quick. And I wasn't focusing on my recovery because like I have to do that because you can give me all the accolades and all the likes and all the viral whatever. But at the end of the day, that's not going to keep me sober. I have to have a strong community. So do I plan on touring? Absolutely. One day, but I don't think anytime soon. If it comes out, I'll happily do it. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up. Like what got you here? So pretty much my very first memory as a kid is straight into domestic violences. I remember my first memory is my dad getting called off to jail and arrested for fighting with my mom. And that's just something I grew up seeing immediately. And I was just in a really crazy childhood. Mom was a a true alcoholic. She was like the one that would start drinking, couldn't stop, and things would get wild. My dad didn't use anything at all for the first like 13, 14 years of my life. And I would go be middle class with my dad and then welfare with my mom. So I learned real quick how to adapt to any environment. I never stayed at the same school for longer than a year. I dropped out of school in the seventh grade. And uh, my house quickly became like the party house all my friends would come over to. And I'd been to so many different schools. There's three or four different schools of people coming to these parties. Mom and dad would be locked downstairs in the room, you know, twisted off what a prescription meds they were on. And I'd be having a party of like 100 people up in my room. And uh, yeah, those were my uh, aspirations. And that's how I got into selling drugs is I would tell mom and dad I can get X amount of pills for X amount of dollars, chop them, do some quick basic math, and then pocket a couple hundred bucks. We had a multi-generational farm that I grew up on and my grandpa ended up dying and it hit my dad hard and we ended up running that pretty much into the ground. It was a trucking company and a farm and all this stuff, man. My family's hard workers, the Keegan side of my family, man. They built this huge thing and yeah, it just got ran into the ground just because of addiction took over. My dad couldn't cope with his dad dying Mm -hmm. and pretty much ended up with nothing, but I could sell drugs. So I got into that world and this was back in 06, 07, 08, and I'm not sure if you were around back then, but there was just an endless supply of pills in the States back then. There was a city I could go to, and as fast as I could sell them and get money to go back and re-up, 
was as quick as I could flip it. And that's how I lived for years. So my late teens, early 20s was just me trying to be this really cool drug dealer and throw the coolest parties. And those are the memories I chose to make. So mm. everything that I talk about and rap about now is what I've seen in those spaces because I watched it start off innocent. Like it was okay. You know what I mean? We were just eating acid and smoking DMT and tripping on Molly. And it was had this like innocent quality to it where it'd just be some beer pong and people weren't dying. People would get mm. messed up and you might lose your mind for a couple of days, end up in a psych ward. But you're, you're gonna <laughs> come true. home and you're. <laughs> well, yeah, I make so, it sound it like it's innocent. a normal thing. Yeah, yeah. As soon yeah, as you yeah. said smoking DMT, I'm like, holy shit, bro! Is that what you started on? What was the first like when the first time you got loaded? What were you getting loaded on? Six pack of Mike's Hard Lemonade, and mm. I'll never forget the heartburn it gave me. I'm so susceptible to heartburn, man. My body mm. is weak when it comes to heartburn, dude. 14 years old, I got heartburn from Mike's Hards. But I remember drinking it though. Like I said, my life was chaos right off rip. I had anxiety in the pit of my stomach all the time. And mm -hmm. nobody ever explained that to me. They just wanted to medicate me. So I had pills shoved down my throat from six years old, antidepressants, ADHD meds, Ritalin, Adderall, this, that, this is wrong with me. You got to take this. You got to take that. Mm -hmm. So I'm already conditioned to take something to feel better. That's what I came into this world doing. It was just like a natural progression as I got older. When I got into drugs, it took that fear away, it took that anxiety away, man. It made me comfortable. I remember I had that first drink and then it progressed to some weed and I remember just, man, I just, I'm, I'm cool. And then I'm quick, I'm witty, I'm funny. I can be the life of the party. Give me a couple of drinks and then from there it progressed. Weed, and then we surround with a uh, cough medicine. We could take like a whole bunch of cough medicine and trip for a couple of days. We'd do that for a while, mm -hmm. and then I'll never forget where my, where the anxiety that I had for ten years that I dealt with. I used to have real bad panic attacks, so I never had a panic attack before. I took these two hits of acid. It was called Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon tabs. I put in my tongue, and then I was also already tripping on like a thousand milligrams of Dex from like a cough medicine, and. When you eat acid, if you know anything about acid, when you consume acid, it takes at least 45 minutes to an hour before you feel the effects. This stuff, I felt the effects within 15 minutes mm -hmm. and I started to panic, took it off my tongue and I took the wad of paper and I gave it to my buddy. And that's when I had my first bad freak out. I'd never felt anything like that before that powerful. And I never came out of that trip. So I went to a really bad trip and I freaked out for two days and I see tracers now. Like when I move my hands or I look at the ground, I see patterns move. And I never stopped seeing it. So that launched into this whole thing of anxiety. And I started having panic attacks. I'd smoke weed. I'd get panic attacks from the weed. I'd start just getting panic attacks from doing anything. So my mom gave me a Xanax. And that's where like my love affair for benzos came into. And that's where a 10-year benzo addiction began was right there at that moment. My mom was just trying to help me out with this panic attack through a medicine a doctor gave her. And then before I know it, I'm seeing the doctors giving me the medicine. And then, yeah, now I'm seeing a doctor for Adderall. I'm 16. I'm getting two milligrams of Xanax a day. I'm robbing my parents for other oxys and perks and somas and whatever I get my hands on. And so were your you parents know, coming is... by the this medication, honestly, or was this like something like the whole family? Oh, was no. Doing whole family affair, man. We were all doing it together. I don't know how it took off and got like that, but just one day we were. They had a doctor that they ended up suing and winning and won like a $50,000 case against this doctor because this doctor was just prescribing things like crazy. They were trying to copy. We all were. Everybody was. But it was different back then. You could really get prescribed anything, anytime. And I would go into apartment complexes and seek out like, old ladies to buy their scripts and go through their medicine cabinet and be like, yo, I'll help you pay your rent. If you give me, get these refilled every month and I'll make sure that you can pay your rent, stuff like that. Like 
It was wow. wild back then. Just door to door? Oh yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Wow. Apartment complexes were my favorite place to go find scripts to buy. <laughs> huh. There would always be something. Mm -hmm. Wow. Obviously looking back now and hearing what we you shared with us, like things went sideways for you right away. But when did it start to become obvious to you that things were going sideways and out of control? I knew that there was definitely a wrong way of living because I had envy for kids who had a regular life coming up, man. I would see kids with both their parents still home and their moms and dads would be there for them and teach them things and be there for their sports. And I would have a real envy in that. Mind you, I dropped out in the seventh grade. I didn't even get to see high school for longer than like a few months. Mm -hmm. I just didn't get that experience. I didn't get that love. There was no love in my house. It was a survivalist. And, and this is not meant to trash my parents at all. They just did the best with the knowledge that they had. They had a lot of, they had drugs forced down their throats that they didn't really know what exactly it was that they were consuming. They had mm -hmm. stuff that they were getting from a doctor that said, this is medicine. We didn't know. It was like a powder keg back then because a lot of people were unsuspecting and did not know that they're giving us legalized heroin, legalized narcotics. And mm -hmm. I just, it was different back then. So I, I don't want this to be something where I'm trashing my mom and dad. We have a, both of us have a, we all have a good relationship today. I love them both very much. Mm, okay. So did you ever have stints of sobriety? I know you mentioned earlier on, what were Not those like for time, you? No, uh, Pretty much it all culminated to, like I said, it, there was an innocent phase to it. And when I say in, innocent, it was still crazy, but it crossed over into this. And all of a sudden meth starts coming around, heroin starts coming around. And we all swore we'd never do stuff like that. We, we did pills, like we had our pinkies out, like while we're taking the pills, like we're high society or something. Hmm. And all of a sudden meth and we, and we looked down on people who did stuff like that. Then all of a sudden we're doing it. And then all of a sudden now people are starting to use needles and rigs and they're smoking it. And we had never heard of anything like that before. We just snorted pills, basically it snorted our drugs. And hmm. then this cross happened and then it just started to get dark and dingy and we stopped throwing parties the way that we used to. Like it stopped being fun, you know, it stopped being a good time. And then it became real cutthroat, you know, it became, I need this not to be sick. Like I have to have this and then I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get it type thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when it morphed into that and then I'm living in a trailer with no furniture inside the trailer, one of my dad's old rentals, I just started squatting in with five or six other people. I'm sleeping on a mattress on the floor, blankets stuffed in the windows, overflowing ashtrays, dishes piled in the sink, no food in the fridge. That's right about then is when I was like, man, I'm 24. What the hell am I doing with my life? This is nuts. I can't even pay a phone bill every month, dude. So right there at that point is when I realized. And then consequently, I got involved with a guy who was running a circuit at music festivals. And that for me, as somebody who'd sold drugs for almost 10 years, that was like a candy land. I ended up getting plugged in with somebody that pushed a lot of major weight. And then I started moving a lot of hallucinogens, lots of, lots of acid, lots of stuff. I, was, I started dressing like a Hunter S. Thompson character, carrying around a briefcase. And the briefcase was like full of just like, in like drugs that'll push you away for 10 years. I'm like very fortunate. I did not get arrested with what I had because I would have been gone. Mm -hmm. We ended up doing this deal where we took some stuff up to Michigan and it was a whole setup. It was to a SWAT team. It was a, a setup deal. And we ended up uh, getting nagged in Michigan. And we both got sentenced to two to 20 years. It was our first crime. And it was my first experience with prison. And this is where I found myself. This is where I found out what I was actually like made of and stuff. And I'll tell you, when I came face to face with a lot of those demons, when you're in prison, I've been on benzos for 10 years. They just took the benzos away. So now I'm yeah. having panic attacks. And I had to face the panic attacks. And I had to go through opiate withdrawal in there too. It was a whole thing, man. 
But I got boot camp, which is a 90 day parole, as long as your minimum is two and your judge agrees to it and it's your first felony. It's the first time I'd ever been in trouble legally. Mm-hmm. It's the first and only time. And, first time uh, you got caught. Thankfully, I was first time I got caught. First and only time. That was it. And uh, like I said, very blessed, very fortunate. And uh, yeah, rolled through there. On a, on a side note, my death metal drumming saved my life. I was getting messed with a lot and people were like, hey, if you don't pay us 10 bucks, 50 bucks a week, we're going to stab you. And I wish I could tell you I was like brave and fought him off, but I was just like, nope, I'll go make a call immediately. We'll get you that 50. But I didn't have anybody. All my people that I thought were my friends went to my house, took everything that I had, robbed me of all my uh, work, robbed me of all my clothes. And mm-hmm. I was alone. So I ended up getting plugged in with this death metal band and they looked out for me the rest of the time I was there. It was pretty cool. But that when you were inside? That was when I was inside. Yep. And that's where you and, and that's where you were introduced to death metal. No, I'd been playing death metal drums and bands and opening up for pretty big bands for almost 10 years. Okay, so hang on a that. second now. Like that, we, we just glazed yeah. over that. When did that get started? So when I was 16, my mom got me a drum set. Or I, was, I would go to this church and play on the drum set, and I learned yeah. to play it by ear. And I just took to drums like water, man. Like I didn't have to practice or learn anything. Like I learned entirely by sight and by ear. And then I got a drum set and I worked at it for a while. And then I just kept getting better and better. And then before I know it, I'm playing like Green Day and ACDC. And then next thing I know, I'm playing Slipknot. I'm playing All That Remains. I'm playing some really complicated stuff. And then if you build it, they will come. Word got around. I have the party house, right? So people start coming over. There's a drum set up in my room. And then I'm having all these huge parties. And then I got people coming and bringing their guitars. And we start linking up. And there was this, there was this local shot it was called the underground and sandusky and then there was peabody's in cleveland there was all these legendary local places to play and uh, started going there and playing man i opened up for uh, a band called chimera which is a huge metal band played with mushroom head played with tommy vexed back when he was with uh, divine heresy got mm-hmm. to do a bunch of cool stuff man it was sweet it was awesome i was always drawn to the stage dude always mm-hmm. man it's just a place that i feel at home at yeah when you found the drums now it obviously it didn't curb your desire to use, but did you find and that must have been an outlet for you? Did it change your life at all and for the better in any way at all? Nope. We just partied like we were rock stars. I loved ripping a half of a pan forty or pan of forty and playing drums for two or three hours. I could mm-hmm. get after it. That was mm-hmm. my bread and butter. And then yeah, we, our band, three of our bandmates were pill dealers, and three out of the five, and we would just go and. It was like Lords of Dogtown, man. We'd just go shred a place up, get in fights, be wild, be violent, get kicked out of bars, smash shit, leave, take a huge house party back to the house, oh, blow man. somebody's place up, play a, play a renegade show, set up a little PA system, just get loud, have the cops called. Chaos. Sounds <laughs> like Constant it. chaos. Yeah, yeah. I thrived in it, man. I thrived so, in it. Tell me, you went inside. You were in prison. You found some recovery in prison. Did you stop using when you were inside? For a time, I did. That's how I got off Xanax. That's how I got off for the first time in 10 years. I couldn't take a Xanax for a panic attack. And I had to learn these breathing techniques to get through my panic attack. And if anybody's watching this and they're stuck with anxiety attacks, I'm telling you, exposure therapy and breath work will outdo Xanax any time of day. And I'm not telling anybody to not take their medicine. But if you're imprisoned by this medication, because some people can be, there is a way off of it. You can live life without panic attacks. I was agoraphobic. I couldn't leave my house without having a bottle of Xanax or else I'd be afraid of this panic attack. When mm-hmm. I sat in prison and faced it, I would have the attacks and lo and behold, nothing would happen. My heart would beat fast. I'd feel like I was going to pass out. I'd get short of breath, but then I would take these incredibly deep breaths and just fight my way through it. 
and it would go away 10 times out of 10. Mm. And that's when I found out that the whole thing is not real. The anxiety is not real. And the Xanax was just a bandage. It took about two years for my mind to go back to normal. But uh, yeah, so I was in there for a while and got through that part. I started going to church. I started trying to get a semblance of something. You know what I mean? I felt very drawn to God at that time. I felt very drawn to church. I was praying every night. But of course, prison's rife with drugs and boxing is everywhere in the prison I was in. It was incredibly cheap. And I ended up falling back into that. And before I know it, I'm like waking up in prison dope sick and because I've been taking subs and then I ran out of the subs. Now I'm waiting for boot camp to come get me and I'm like about to go to boot camp dope sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm in prison. I'm like, man, how the hell did that happen? Yeah. But fortunately, they came and got me and I got out of there unscathed. Yeah. So it was quite the experience. So what was it like getting out of prison, going back to the real world? It was an adjustment for sure, but I was hungry to do the right thing. And I would post on my personal Facebook. I didn't have any sort of social media dreams back then, but I would just post and I would get quite a big response every time I would post. I had a lot of people that were very supportive of me and supportive of what I did. And I was sharing what I was going on with. But then pretty much right off rip though, when I got out, I wanted to get high. But I didn't want to do the fentanyl because people were dying from the fentanyl and that concerned yeah. me. I didn't want to be another statistic. And so I, I really didn't get into fentanyl too heavily just because it's, I'm a traditionalist, man. I like my opiates to let me catch a knot. I don't want them to kill me. So that's when I discovered Kratom. That's when I went and seen a doctor and then I was on the rotten. And then I ended up having to prescribe me opiates somehow in 2017. It was this whole thing. It was this whole ordeal. And, but I would tell people I was in recovery and for some people that is their recovery. But for me, I was anything but recovered, man. I'm taking four or five different things just to get through the day. And it was very toxic for me. We got a comment here. Rick Stone. Rick Stone is sitting in the hospital parking lot right now with a so-called panic attack. He goes on to say, my anxiety attacks feel like drug overdoses every day. Life is really scary. I come to the hospital every day. So I know if I go down, I have a good chance to get up. I assume that's what you were going oh to there. Yeah, Rick, listen, man, I did that for years. I lived under that fear of that panic attack for years and would absolutely have to sit outside of a hospital because I would tell myself, okay, if I'm going to go down right now, then at least there's will be somebody there to help me and they'll be able to save me. But I can tell you when you reverse the mindset and now when it would happen, I would just say, if I fall and I hit the ground right now and I die, I guess that's it. I'm going to die and there's nothing I can do to stop it. So if you're going to take me out, and that's what I would have to say to myself. And I know that sounds a little abrasive, but you have to bully this bully that's bullying you. You know what I mean? So I talk shit to it. When I get I, in no uncertain terms, do I let that thing rule over my life? I would say start with some breath, breathing exercises, some diaphragm breathing, which you can YouTube diaphragm yeah. breaths for anxiety. And then from there on, another big thing is just accepting death and accepting that, yeah, you are going to die. We're all going to die. At the end of the day, there's nothing you can do about it. And the sooner you accept that, it loses its power over you. And when I tell people that, that's like a radical thing for people to try and accept and digest. But that's what I had to do to get over this. And the Mm -hmm. second I said, all right, you're going to kill me. My heart's going to beat really fast. I'm going to get really sweaty and I'm going to die. And then all of a sudden I'm still standing here. I'm not dead. (laughs) I'm still sitting here. So now what? I'm just going to keep going about my day. That was stupid, wasn't it? Try that, man. And I'm telling you, it can change your entire life. You don't have to live in fear of that anymore. Let it take Mm -hmm. you. Drop wherever you're going to drop, bud. If you drop, it's your time to drop. To say something about breath work, I finally bought into it and it changed my life. 
it, it absolutely changed my life. Now, I still have, I'm not to say, and I was talking about this the other day. People sometimes say, oh, I, I entered recovery and nothing worries me anymore. Nothing scares me anymore. And I, that, that's bullshit. I still have really shitty days, right? But six and a half years into recovery and finally I buy into it and finally I take it seriously. And breath work, man, like, good call, man. That It's amazing. It really does change so much. I have the best revelations. Absolutely. Like after a good breathwork session, I, that's when I have my most clarity and I can finally meditate. You know what I mean? You know, the, the squirrel cage, I thought meditation was past beyond me until I found breathwork and I finally felt quiet. Oh my goodness. It is wonderful. It's, uh, just breathing into the stomach too. If anybody needs a quick example of it, you breathe into your belly, you fill up your stomach for four. So you breathe in for four, you hold for four, and then you exhale for four. And do that three times when you're having anxiety and immediately, physiologically, you will change the way your body's reacting. I would have to break up and snort a Xanax to get myself to calm down. And I would have to snort the Xanax and then take water and splash it up my nose to get it in there faster. Now mm -hmm. I just do that. And I still have anxiety sometimes when I'm about to get on a stage in front of a thousand people and I'm dead sober, or if I'm about to go into a rehab and rap for eight unenthusiastic people, I'm freaking out. So I do those, that breath work and I, I do that. I breathe into my belly for four, I hold it for four, and then I exhale for four. And I'll notice within the first one, boom, I'm relaxed, I'm chill. So mm -hmm. give that a shot. Diaphragm breathing on YouTube. So what brought you into your first real genuine stint of recovery? So I had gotten out of prison, was seeing the doctor, was doing all these different things, convincing myself that I'm sober, I'm in recovery, life's good, but I was miserable and I wanted to kill myself. I went to rehab in Florida and now there's this guy, his name is Richie Weber and he is in the next town over from me. He has a big recovery platform and I watched him build it from the ground up. We used to party and get high together. So he was a really big inspiration as to one day I wanna do something like that. One day I wanna be a recovery voice and share my recovery, but I wanna give people like the real raw truth of this. So I ended up going to rehab in Florida and I told myself, cause I was against AA for the longest time I did not like AA. I thought it was disingenuous. I would call it a cult. Just the same things that you've seen it's a, a lot little of people bit, do, I did. It's a little bit culty. Sure. <laughs> let me, and, and you are absolutely welcome to that opinion for sure. And I love has, the program. I'm just, I'm, I got clean in, in NA. So just through that lens. Just sure. <laughs> I get it because I thought the same exact thing. Mm. But for me, man, it's like, I'm grateful for that cult because that cult today is, a, a support system and a friendship and a bond that you, you can't put a dollar amount net worth on. You know, when I went down there, I was encouraged to go out and find somebody that had something that I wanted. Right. So mind you, I'm against this shit. I hate it. I don't like AA. I don't like all the hugs and the smiles. That makes me uncomfortable when people do that. But why at the end of the day, why is that my thought process? Because I, I, in my world, people smile at your face and then stab you in the back, but that's not how reality works. That's not how people really are. So I was encouraged to go out and find something that I truly wanted and find somebody who has something that you want. So I did just that, found somebody and he spoke in a way that I liked. He carried himself in the manner that I respected and he had a lot of knowledge about the big book that I wanted to know more about. I asked this man to be my sponsor. I asked him for his number, that was in 2019. The place that I'm sitting in today is because of that interaction that I made back then. And I still talk to him three or four times a week. He is a huge part of my life, my recovery, who I am now. He's a mentor, he's helped me build endless aspects of my life and help me become the man that I am today.
-hmm. And that's one small part. And that was given to me for free because I was willing to go ask this guy for my number. So I got all about this. One thing I see in this program over and over and over again is people that stuck around and became insanely successful. And when I say successful, I don't mean financially. I mean, with their family, I mean, with getting their kids back physically, their, their body gets put back together. You know what I mean? Mentally successful. So that's what I wanted, man. I wanted to be somebody my daughter could rely on. I wanted to be the dad that my daughter could call and say, dad, can I have $50 for this one? I can hand it over and give it to her. Or, Hey dad, I need picked up or dad, I need you. And I can say, I'm there. I'm there for you. I love you. I got you. I wanted to be that person because I wasn't there for my daughter like that. My, mm -hmm. I conceived my daughter and then I bounced. I ran away. I was scared. I tried yeah. saying that she wasn't mine and I didn't see her for almost five years. I'd get her on the weekends and take pictures with her on Facebook so I could pull chicks. She yeah, was yeah. cute. She was good for that. But as far as like being an actual father and a dad, I didn't have time for that. So tell us about Kayla. You wrote Kayla that song? Kayla was right in the middle. Yeah, dear Kayla. Dear Kayla, absolutely. You know, when we met, my mom brought her home one night, actually. And I was I'm the guy that brings girls homes and just moves them right into your house. So that's what happened. She was like the fourth girl I've done that with. Brought her home and moved her right into my house. And I was like, all right, mm -hmm. we're in love. She knows she has a slipknot shirt. That means we're meant to be together. And uh, you're cute. We, uh, I love you now. Along. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we were staying in that trailer for a while. That was in my mid 20s when I was trying to work an honest job, but I was still like using here and there and uh, still dealing with the Xanax and the pills and all that. And uh, yeah, I ended up getting pregnant and then I ended up bouncing. And that's when I got wrapped up into the music festival thing, mm. changed my identity entirely. And I just, I was there for the birth of her for sure. But as far as like actually being a father for those first couple of years, Kayla did it entirely on her own. She did a good job. She, she had her own place and she didn't really do too heavy of drugs at that time. She'd just smoke her weed and do her thing. And she was a good mother, but things had a way of going south and it, Right after I got back, after I went away to rehab in Florida, she ended up going pretty hard to the left as well. And she ended up giving up rights to my daughter. So daughter ended up going with grandma. That's where my daughter resides today. Her grandma stepped up and took care of her. I've been co-parenting with her grandmother ever since. Mm -hmm. So the relationship between me and Kayla became pretty strained. And if I'm being honest, man, I didn't have nice things to say about her. When I wrote the song, the last thing I told her, said about her was nasty. I said very nasty things and I held it against her for abandoning our daughter without being able to look in the mirror and understand that I did too. You know, I abandoned her too. Yes, I showed up for her now, but where was I the first four years? Kayla was there, mm. you know? So that's something that the program has helped me come through to see now because I didn't see that then. Even when I wrote the song, I didn't really fully see that. So I, every time I perform the song or I put the song out, I drop that with a disclaimer. Like, I didn't write this song on the pretext of I was heartbroken when she passed or this was like this big thing. Like, because when she died, yes, I was. It, it hurt. It hurt to see my daughter hurt like that. But again, I wasn't saying nice stuff about her the week before that happened. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't sitting over there crying over, you know what I'm saying? But I can tell you, though, when that happened it changed the way I thought about the whole situation. And do I wish I act differently? Absolutely, man. I wish I acted way different, dude. I wish I would have reached out to her. I wish I would have been, if I would have known what I know now, not be the person who I am today, I would have just been there for her. I would have tried to plant seeds like I do with people now. When I see people who are hopelessly out there, I'll just plant seeds every now and then. I'll send a message like, hey, just want you to know, man, I love you, dude. And anytime you want to come around, I can help you. Anytime you want help, like it's there. And mm -hmm. they'll open it and read it. And they won't respond, but that's cool because I'm going to plant another seed in two weeks anyway. So I just, I wish I would have did that with her, but I didn't. So yeah. 
by then though she had known me as a rapper and she liked my songs she was proud of my songs it wasn't all a hate it was a love-hate relationship between her and i but she had known of some songs of me and she was proud of them she was and i know that she would like this and she would be proud of this song she'd be happy that i wrote a song for her and immortalized that that struggle that her and i had something to remember her by because it, it sucked the way she went out in a very brutal fashion and it sucks because my daughter's that's left a hole it's left a hole in my daughter. My daughter doesn't understand. And that's going to, my daughter's going to carry that forever because she was my whole, my daughter's world. And that's just what this disease does. That's what this addiction does. It's what it is. It's like, we're different people, but we suffer from the same affliction. You and I are different, but I guarantee you, we get down to brass tacks. We did the same things. We had the same thoughts. We dealt with the same fears, the same anxieties, the same sickness. It's an all-encompassing thing, man. It's just, there's just different ways to get around it and fix it. We all have, yeah. it's crazy. So I I want to talk a little bit about what it was like integrating into your daughter's life in recovery. But before we do, there's a pile of comments on Facebook and Donna's going to at least read a few of them. We don't want to want you all to feel like we're trying to ignore you, but I don't know if we're going to get to them all. So Candace Holland says, Matt helps me stay clean so much. And he reminds me of my mom. She was an addict that overdosed in 2007. I'm so sorry for your loss. Yes, yeah, so sorry for your Very loss. Very sorry for your loss. Mm -hmm. Happy to help. That blows my mind that I'm able to help anybody. Hey, <laughs> here for you. There's been a few comments in here. I won't be able to track them down on, on the fly like this, but there's been several comments talking about how much you've helped people. It's incredible the things that I've been reading tonight here, Matt. Yeah. As a parent who has experienced child apprehension and then in recovery had to reintegrate into my son's life, I'm always interested to know what that was like for you. You entered into recovery and now you are starting to take some responsibilities. Tell us about what was going through your head and what your experience was like. I entered into recovery and I had a fire to get her back and to create a relationship with her. My responsibilities as a father just took over. I'd missed so much time. And I realized I'd created this little life and she looked up to me as her father. And how could I let her down as my father had let me down? And I wanted to give her everything that I never had. I want her to have the respect, the love, the sound, just the comfortability that I never had. I don't want her to ever have to spend a day in that chaos. She's already had to endure so much, right? So I set out from there. My goal is like, all right, I'm going to make it. I'm going to have to earn her trust. And that's what I had to do that first year was just showing up, picking her up, being there when I said I was going to be there and earning her trust and having to navigate all these nuanced, different things. You know, a child is unfiltered and they're going to say what it is and how they're feeling. And they're going to say things that hurt you and they're going to have takes and feelings that you're not going to like. And you really just got to understand that it's they're a child they're just a child and you got to meet them there and you have to demonstrate but you have to demonstrate because they're watching you everything that yeah. you're doing they're paying attention to and everything that i just spouted off to you that's not something that i learned that was taught to me from my second sponsor this mm -hmm. other guy is he's a powerful man he's just powerful he's in my life big time man his name's steve and he taught me so much about being a dad and how to be such a better patient father and how to demonstrate these emotions and how to act and stuff and Man, I worked so hard at just trying to be there for her and get gain her trust back. And I did. Within the two years, it suddenly I, it became dad, dad, dad. Mm -hmm. And I still kept working for it and still kept working for it. And now it's turning into I'm trying to discipline her and teach her certain things. And How old is she now? Do it. 10, about to be 11. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. She's full on herself, too, man. She is her own. She's become her own person. You watch that from six, seven on. They begin to get a grasp of the world and develop into themselves. Yeah. She's, and she's quick-witted, man. She'll keep me on my toes. She can <laughs> quick-wit right over me sometimes. She's very smart. She's got that quick-on-the-draw thing. She's got her own TikTok. She just recently started, like, writing songs, and she wants to write music now. And it's cool, man, because she's emulating what I'm doing. And she's a huge Melanie Martinez fan. Do you let her listen to your music? Oh, good question, man. She did not like the Dear Kayla song at I all. I can't imagine. She, she was mad, and I didn't want her to hear it. I actually had her blocked from all my social medias, and she I don't know how she found it. I think she created a new account, and she came across it one day. And it's definitely been a source of contention. She was resistant to it at first, but... She sees, she sees that I'm doing it for the right reasons. Like I'm here to help people. That's ultimately what I want to do. I love that I get to do this, like to help people and for a living. It's crazy because that's ultimately like all I've ever wanted to do in my life is like a job or a profession is just be able to help people in whatever capa capacity that is. Mm -hmm. I get to do that today. And I know she sees that and she's coming around a little bit more. We don't talk about that song, but at the end of the day, I just try and explain to her like that song, it helps people. And for what the song was for it was, it just talks about where we were at. If you really listen to the song, it's about what actually happened. It's not in, in for anything else. It's not to proper up and say, oh, this is what happened. It, it's to say, I want people to hear that song and I want them to go take that love, that Kayla in their life. And I want them to reach out in the way that I wish that I would have. That's the purpose yeah. of that song. In my personal experience, when I heard that song, it brought me to tears because I think Donna and I have had a hell of a ride and things could have gone very very different when I heard that song. It moved me deeply, and I'm sure it caused some contention between, obviously, with your daughter. But, like, what about other family members? What about Kayla's family? Yeah, her there... mom, Kayla's mom, yeah, she didn't like it either. She's very contentious towards my music and my movement as well. Their idea of an addict is just to not talk about it. Just don't talk about it. And she doesn't want her around any of my groups. I do a lot of events. I do a lot of recovery events, and that's just something we've had to butt heads on because that's just something I'm not backing down from. I want my daughter to be exposed to this because my daughter's already had it where it's at. And if she has her mother's blood and my blood flowing through her, yeah, if she yeah. gets older, she needs to have the facts. She needs to have some of the tools and an understanding of what this is. We can't just sweep it under the rug and not talk about it because yeah. that kills people. And that's the mentality that I take towards my kids too. I'm not trying to save my kids from the world. I'm trying to prepare them for it. Yes, absolutely. And I... Me too, 100%. It is a unforgiving place. And if you don't have an understanding of what it is and you think it's just all going to be handed to you, the her grandma does what a grandma does. Mm -hmm. I need to do what a father does. Mm -hmm. And that's my mission with her right now, man, is getting her prepared and making her do things on her own and making her uncomfortable and being loving and supporting while doing it. But it's still a task because she's getting mm -hmm. grandma and she only gets dadded two weekends out the month. So mm -hmm. I, I do what I can. Mm -hmm. Was it tough to get grandma to buy in to letting you see your daughter? Nope. She was very supportive with that. And she's taken good care of her. She's given her a great home. She's been good to her. All of her needs are met. She's very spoiled. She lives very good. And she's never tried to keep me from her. She's never doubted me. She's never, ever stepped in the way of her being with me. Her and I have actually seen eye to eye on a lot of things. And honestly, I think just most of the stuff we just butt heads with is just petty little things. Because at the end of the day, we need to be on the same team because our both of our goal is to make sure that my daughter's successful. So tell us about uh, Kratom, because I know uh, you use that as a tool. And, uh, 
for your recovery, whether you feel now that was misguided or not. But I remember when we first mm. spoke the first time, you were just starting to come into a realization where this may be a problem for you. So tell us how that came into mm -hmm. your life and, and what it did for you. So disclaimer, let's do a disclaimer first. If you are taking Kratom right now and Kratom is part of your recovery, congratulations on your recovery. I'm happy that you're sober. I'm happy that you're doing well. It is not for me or anyone else to say who's sober, who's not, what's recovery, what's not. Okay. That's mm -hmm. not what I'm about. However, Noted. I am going to share, I am going to share my experience and others experience of what's happened with Kratom. And that's, that doesn't skew what I just said. Okay. When I start taking Kratom, I abuse the shit out of it. I am a abuser. I abuse things. I'm an addict. I cannot take things right out the gate. If it gets me high. I'm just going to, I'm going to ruin it. So right out the gate with Kratom, as soon as I got it and it made me feel good, mm -hmm. I started taking it every three or four hours now, by the mouthful. Were you already abstinent when you started taking Kratom? Yes. It's when I got out of prison. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. I didn't say, I didn't take it to get off anything or not take anything. So in my mind, I was taking it to stay away from like the opiates, which that's a, a use that it has for a lot of people. A lot of people take Kratom instead of opiates and so, and you can live a productive life on Kratom. It, it doesn't debilitate you. You're not going to nod out from it. You're not going to overdose and die. It's next to impossible to overdose and die from Kratom. You really have to would have to consume a lot. You, you really got to commit to that. Water. Huh, you really yeah. got to commit. But for me, though, the withdrawals were the problem and how quickly the withdrawal set in. I would because I had taken it every three or four hours, I would experience an opiate withdrawal within four hours. Now, from my understanding, the reason that is, there are some people who get opiate withdrawals from Kratom and there are some people who don't. The people who, like me, have a neural pathway to know what it means to withdraw from opiates, we're going to have the opiate withdrawal. For the regular person who's never been addicted to opiates, if they take Kratom, they're not going to get an opiate withdrawal from Kratom whatsoever. If they're going to get like a coffee headache, maybe tops. But for me, I'm full on dope sick, bubble guts, chills, runny nose, no sleep, anxiety. It was a nasty freaking withdrawal dude i'm telling you just from the powder and that was before i graduated to the extract shots the extract shots are literally equivalent they're very potent to say the least they're very important what'd and you call the them withdrawal is very nasty they're called extract shots you can buy 50 times or 100 times the powder the tea you can buy little and they're little shots and they're at every gas station they're all over the place i just shared a video on my page at the drive-thru across the street, there's like a whole bunch of racks of these extract shots at this drive-thru now. And it's all, all it said too, it said we are one step away from a bad decision, stay connected friends. And I just said that, it did 3 million views with thousands of comments of people thinking I'm like creating and generating all this hate on Kratom. All I'm doing is just sharing my experience with it. And subsequently, there are a lot of other people that have had the same experience. It's not like my experience mm -hmm. is, is minuscule a lot of people have had problems with this and the, even the head shop owners will tell you they got people coming in there like fiends for this stuff for this yeah, yeah. For these extract shots and in, in no way am i trying to demonize it in no way do i want to see it banned any anything that pulls somebody out the mouth of big pharma is a win for me i believe in like freedom of choice i'm, I'm pretty liberal with with my beliefs and i believe that people should have the right to choose I don't want somebody making all those choices for us and i certainly don't want to see that pulled off the shelves because somebody like me can't use it successfully there are people who use it in their recovery but for me and the reason why i broke my sobriety and i counted it as a relapse because i was fucked up off of it man at the end of the day i was really messed up off of it i was really sick and i literally felt like i did when i was on opiates i felt just like i did and it has this way when you abuse it it becomes evil 
not that I'm saying that the, the plant or the substance itself is evil. It's the way I was using it because I was having suicidal thoughts. I was having just this, I, this whole crisis. And it, I felt the more I took it, it attributed that to that. When it first started taking, it felt good. I felt great. I'd get these boosts of energy. I could work 12 hour shifts. I could be more attentive with my daughter. My back didn't hurt as much. All these great things. And then after six months or a year, all that stuff stops. And then all of a sudden you're just taking it to maintain. Now you're taking yeah. it not to be sick. Now I got now to wake up in the it. middle of the night to take it. Just to get to normal. <laughs> yes. And that's when for me, it was like, all right, this is a relapse. Mm -hmm. And when you work a 12 step program, it calls for total abstinence from all substances. And I don't get caught in the politics or all that shit. I think yeah. somebody working an MAT program can totally work the 12 steps, but I'm telling people I'm abstinent from all substances. So for me, that's why it was such a big deal and why I was like lightweight crying with you on the phone because I let, I, I just felt like a piece of shit. I felt like an absolute liar. Like I told everybody, I tell everybody I'm abstinent. I'm Matt Keegan recovery, but I'm having to put eye drops in my eyes before I go live because I'm so tweaked out off these extra shots. Yeah. I, I have to say, I really appreciate your candor tonight. There's been some tough comments yeah. that you've made, but you've uh, navigated them with grace. Absolutely. Tell us about Crime Family. Tell us about that song. Oh my goodness, man. I wrote that song in my grandma's driveway. And so for me, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, a lot of people will say they didn't make this, they didn't make that. To me, it's an all-encompassing term. It's for everybody that was getting in on that back in the 2005, 6, 7, 8. If you remember, there was a generic of a pill of a generic of a pill of a generic of a pill, and there was a never-ending supply. So here in America, they charged us at the bottom. We were prosecuted as drug dealers for selling their product. The doctors, eventually, they came after all the doctors. But you know who they never went after? Mm. The people who created the product. The factories, what, 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 where are the big factories that pushed out these millions of pills? And who's the person that overseen and said, all right, we made 10 million pills this month. Now we need to make another 20 million pills next month. Who did that? And why are they not being charged as the person? It's, it just doesn't make any sense. If you charge somebody for selling drugs, you charge somebody that has manufactured and created it, right? So my whole big guff with these people is, they never got charged, but yet they're sitting over here prosecuting and locking people up, putting them in prison, putting doctors in prisons. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but I'm saying that the people whose product that we all had a hand in pushing, they should be held accountable too. And I'm not talking about big fines that don't even dent their quarterly earnings. I'm talking about jail time. And if I had it my way, it would be much more radical and we would do something much more crazy if I could unite people in that direction because mm. it's sickening that the way they, these lobbyists and these corporate people get away with the absolute murder that they, they, they bring down in this world. It's disgusting. On the same token, thank God for amoxicillin. I have pneumonia and it just cleared my medicine up so I don't have a problem with modern medicine. I just have a problem with them commercializing addiction. And now there's this big push. So that's my talk about crime family and let's on the mere side of subtoxin the following song they have this big push now suboxone is the gold standard to substance abuse disorder treatment they're prescribing it to people who are on meth they're prescribing it to people who are on alcohol suboxone an opiate mm -hmm. and people will say oh it's an opiate antagonist i've done opiates i have a very intimate knowledge of opiates and so do millions of other people and suboxone is an opiate gets you high like an opiate i take it every day it doesn't get me high if i took an oxy 80 every day twice a day at the same time for three months it wouldn't get me high anymore of course it's oh we're well aware of that of course my thing is these same companies that created the millions of pills and didn't get any trouble now they're creating millions of addiction substance abuse disorder medication 
and pushing it out. And oh, by the way, it's incredibly addictive. It's going to take two to four weeks for you to get off of it. And if you want to get off of it, we're not going to offer any resources to do so. I have a problem with that. I have a big problem with that, that these same companies that created the disease are, are now hawking the cure. And I just don't think anybody's talking about that. Pe more people should talk about that. And more importantly, more people should get together and hold people accountable. We can get together in mass and go cancel somebody for a mean thing they said in 2013, but we can't all get together and stop like people literally being enslaved through a pill without even knowing. Do you know how many people are in my DMs whose doctor just puts them on Suboxone without even telling them how addictive it can be? And now they're stuck on it. And they've been stuck on it for years. And their doctor says, oh, you're going to be on this for the rest of your life. Meanwhile, they said they're so depressed and miserable. Their libido's gone. Their energy levels are low and they have to take this medication. They can't miss work to get out of it. They can't go to rehab because they got Medicaid. It's crazy. So these are the, these things I talk about. And again, you know, I have to flip on the other side of the token. I'm not anti-Suboxone. I, every time I've went to rehab, guess what I begged for, crawled there and cried for when I was withdrawn from opiates, Suboxone. Mm -hmm. So it has a place. Are you shooting fentanyl on your neck and you have to get on MAT so you don't die? Okay, then yeah, there are some extreme cases. But should it be for every Tom, Dick, and Harry that we can throw a quarter at? No, absolutely not. There should be steps and people should be able to be made aware of what exactly the risks are that come with this. But again, if you're if, if you've maintained a life and this has given you a life back and it's been a life-saving medication for you, I'm all for that. I am 100% for that. I will advocate for that and I will fight for that. But at the same time, all the information needs to be presented. And I get mm -hmm. a lot of hate for presenting this information. For just daring to say that Suboxone is addictive, there are people that have made videos that say I'm killing people. And all I'm trying to do is just educate people and share the, share what I don't see anybody else doing. I don't see anybody else making videos talking about how Suboxone has been addictive. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Where can people find your music? Where can people follow you on social media? Tell us all the things. Yeah, I'm on everything. Facebook, TikTok, Instagram at Matt Keegan Recovery. M-A-T-T. Keegan is K-E-E-G-A-N. And my music's on pretty much all the major streaming services. We upload through Muse, so you'll find me on YouTube, Apple Music, Spotify, Matt Keegan, just Matt Keegan on those, not Recovery. It's just Matt Keegan because you can find me across pretty much anything and everything. I don't really have an alter ego. I am the same person out I in the street the as you're catching me now. <laughs> yes, I am all. Yes. Awesome. Okay, man. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Appreciate you sharing your journey with us, telling us a little bit about your music, helping us learn a little bit about your message. And that's it. We'll let you go. Take care. Take hey, care. Take it easy. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. All right. If you got something out of tonight's episode, give that like button a click at the bottom. If you are on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, hit that notification bell. We go live every Friday morning, every Sunday evening. If you don't got time to watch us for an hour, you can find all our recordings on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's it for tonight. Take care, everyone. Say, hey, this is Hard Knocks Talks. <laughs>